Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. Um, and my guest today is Jillian Melchior. Um, she is an editorial page writer for the Wall Street Journal. She's been a fellow both with us at IWF and with the Steamboat Institute. And most relevantly for this conversation, she has been doing some awesome in-depth on the ground, like real old school reporting uh, in Ukraine during this ongoing war. Um, I thought it was a good time maybe to to check back in with with the Ukrainian war. It's, it's been almost six months of fighting at this point. Uh, so for that reason, I want to welcome Jillian to High Noon. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so like I just said, you know, this is, we now have months of fighting. Um, we have multiple aid packages from the West, both from America and from Europe. I mean, we can discuss and we will discuss whether those have been sufficient. Um or whether they were wise, or or uh, whether they actually were helping, but um, I, I feel like this this war has been extremely difficult for the average person, myself included, to really follow um, in, in terms of, of who's winning, what's going on on the ground. Um, perhaps because this is, in many ways, the the first major um, war for territory in the digital age, and uh, we're we're kind of seeing. We chatted about this off uh, off podcast, but just now, but. It's almost like we're seeing World War II propaganda, but in live time, right? So, um, you know, all over the internet, it, at least I know for myself, it's been an extremely difficult to try to figure out, you know, what the facts are on the ground. So you've you've traveled, I think, at this point, is it two or three times to three Ukraine? Times. So, so uh, once before the war, just like immediately before the war and twice since it has broken out. So in this last trip that you took, um, what, what did you see? I mean, what, what is life like, uh, during this war in Ukraine? Um, what did you hear and see about the front lines and, and sort of how the war is, is going for, for Ukrainians? So I was pretty far removed from the front lines. Um, there are a lot of journalists out there, particularly photojournalists that I think have been spectacularly brave going to places like Donbass region and, and the places that are really facing incessant shelling and a real risk. Uh, obviously traveling to a war is not a, a risk-free thing, but I was in Kiev. So there the major concern is missile strikes. Uh, the last trip that I did, I, you know, I was heading in, you go to the Polish border and there are no flights into Ukraine right now. So it's about a 10 hour drive. Um, and as we were driving toward the city, there had been a series of missile strikes targeting the railway system on, on the day that I was there. So you're driving toward that. Um, when you get close to Kiev, what you see is um, some of the cities that had been under Russian occupation, some of the places that there had been very heavy fighting around Kiev. So things like uh, burnt out tanks on the side of the road or buildings that had been completely bombed out or reduced to rubble, bridges that had been uh, shredded or re reduced and, uh, you know, it's quite the contrast because speaking of World War II, I think we heard a lot about um, sort of the British stiff upper lip. And I don't think I'd really understood that until I'd been in Ukraine during the war. It's a weird combination. Um, in Kiev, they're trying to preserve normalcy. And that's almost kind of an act of uh, defiance against the Putin regime. So restaurants are still open, cafes are still open, businesses are coming back. But at the same time, it's not uncommon to be awoken at two in the morning with an air raid siren. And a, a lot of people are not going to the basement or going to the shelter when the sirens go off. And that was hard for me to understand at first. But I, just going back to that concept of defiance, I think it's people clinging to the normality that they can preserve and saying that you're not going to intimidate us uh, from living our normal lives to the extent that that is possible. 
One of the other um, interesting reports that you you did that really struck me is is exactly related to that normalcy. You talked about how the the sort of civil society in in Ukraine has been repurposed for the war um, and, and sort of redirected. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's it's really fascinating. So. Um, I'm a student of the classics uh, and a student of American history. And one of the things that I really enjoyed reading was democracy in America. And Tocqueville's talking about how there's a civil society that needs to flourish in order to preserve freedom and have a democracy. And I think that's something that we're really seeing happening in Ukraine right now. And it it dates back to the revolution that they had, uh, you know, in 2013, 20, or I guess it would have been 2014, 2015, when they ousted Yanukovych and civil society came together for the protests in Maidan. Um, what you saw back then was people taking to the streets, trying to do it in a peaceful way, supporting anti-corruption efforts. And I think that really kind of empowered the people of Ukraine to feel like we don't need to wait on the government. We can organize spontaneously and do it on our own. And you're seeing that movement kind of come to fruition in the war. You know, when I was in Lviv, which is in western Ukraine, I got a lot of refugees coming out of areas that are very hard hit. And one of the things that was surprising to me is as soon as the refugees arrived in relative safety, they were asking, what can I do to help? What can I do to support the broader defense of my country? And you saw that in um, crowdsourcing fundraising for military equipment and military supplies, things like first aid kits out to the soldiers on the front line. But, you know, I also saw like moms and little kids going together and weaving these, um, it's it's almost like a net and you tie pieces of fabric around it. But the point is that if you do this enough, it it can provide like a a big camouflage for tanks or soldiers or military equipment. So it's really an all in effort an all of society effort. And unfortunately, you know, I, I think that um, Ukrainians are rising to the occasion in this way because they know that they are targets. This is uh, Russia is not abiding by the rules of law it's going out of its way to target civilian infrastructure. We've seen attacks on schools, on hospitals, um, most recently on a mall that killed about 20 people. And these are really horrific things. They're intended to terrorize the Ukrainian population and force them into submission. So I think this civil society that we're seeing kind of resurge is a good sign for Ukraine as a democracy as a whole. Um, But I also think that it says something about the war effort and how targeted civilians feel. Um. Speaking of, of the, the war effort, I mean, how, where does it stand today? Because I, I feel like, again, um, it's, it's very difficult from a casual observer perspective to, to figure out where that stands. Obviously, um, Russia is holding large parts of the East. Uh, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of hope currently to retake those regions um, in, the, in the, at least the, the immediate future. Um, you know, where where does this war go from here? Where do people in Ukraine think the war is going to go? Do they think that the Russians will stay in the east? Do they think they will continue to press west and attempt once again to to go to Kiev? I mean, how how do they anticipate this war proceeding? You know, when I was out there in March, what I saw was, um, you know, it was around the time that Ukrainian soldiers pushed Russian troops back from Kiev. And that's something that Nobody among the Western observers really anticipated that they'd have this formidable defense and be able to push Russia back there. So I think back then there was a lot of hope about if we fight hard enough, if we stand up against the Russians, we can push them back. Um, This last trip, I think what I saw is 
um, not despair, but a certain reality check that this is going to go on for a really long time. And it's right now almost like a stalemate. I mean, Russia has taken significant territory in eastern Ukraine. Um, but, you know, I think one thing to pay attention to is in the south. Uh, it's, it's taken a lot of territory. It's trying to create a land bridge um, to Crimea and has done so successfully at this point. Um, but it's also trying to control the Black Sea and cut Ukraine off from this. Now, there are a couple strategic reasons for that. Uh, first of all, it it allows Russia to basically encircle Ukraine, but it also cuts off Ukraine from the ports. And the ports are really important because Ukraine is the breadbasket of, of Europe, certainly a lot of the world. And you were already seeing the startings of a food crisis in places. Putin knows that when you have a food crisis, when you cut off grain shipments and make the price of food commodities go up, that that creates political instability in a lot of uh, developing countries. And so he's trying to use this as diplomatic leverage. From the Ukrainian perspective, what I see is um, a lot of the people that I spoke to said that basically because Putin attacked in the way he did on February 24th, because it was a whole country effort, a full invasion and attempt to seize the capital, they feel like at this point, Putin's basically made his intentions clear. He wants to take Ukraine as a whole. And so they feel like if there are any territorial concessions, if they give up any land, that that gives Putin a chance to pause, to rebuild his army and to make another attempt at that effort. And I think they're justified in thinking that because, you know, we talk about the full invasion, the war being about five, six months. But this conflict has really been going on since 2014. It's about eight years. And uh, Ukrainians... I guess, we're very disappointed in the Western response then that uh, even if you look at the sanctions that were levied at that time, they were pretty weak. And you saw that Putin was content for a little bit with Crimea and content with chipping away in the east, but that he, I guess, like took this opportunity to rally and mount a broader attack. And they feel like if there are any concessions or any sign of weakness now, that the same thing is going to happen. So it's an incremental attempt to take the whole of Ukraine. And I think that's why you're seeing such a hard push um, what I'd be paying attention to in the next couple months is we've already seen Ukrainians retake Snake Island. That's a little tiny, tiny island off the Black Sea coast. But it's really strategically important. Um, after Russia was uh, lost its flagship destroyer, uh, or flagship ship, uh, it used this island as a substitute. It's a place that it could launch missile attacks, that it could basically uh, launch um anti-surveillance stuff that cut Ukraine off from seeing what it was doing in the Black Sea. So it was really important that Ukraine retook that island. It's of huge geostrategical importance. But I think the next place that I'd be paying attention to is around Kherson and around Mykolaiv, because I think that if the Ukrainians are able to, to make gains there and push the Russians back in the south, uh, that's a really positive sign. Conversely, if Russia is able to you know, move further along toward Odessa, which is the bright spot that is unoccupied along the Black Sea right now, it's going to feel emboldened. And the open question right now is, where do Putin's territorial ambitions stop? Do they stop in Ukraine? Um, you've got Transnistria, which is a little sliver of Moldova there that already has a Russian presence. And I think it's not outside of the realm of possibility that if Russia is able to consolidate its gains along the south all the way across to Moldova, that Moldova will be next. Um, th- this brings up broad picture. Yeah, no this this brings up um a a question about um because one of the things that that you read online and especially on the right now um is that somehow 
the America and the West are um, per- perpetuating this war uh, to the detriment of of Ukrainian civilians, and at least my interactions, to the extent I have them with with friends and stuff, um, friends of friends over there, um, it's been the opposite. the The perception in Ukraine is that America is pushing, or that the West is pushing them to accept territorial concessions in a ceasefire that, as as you just uh, outlined, they don't believe will last. Um, they don't. They don't believe that. Um, giving up parts of the East will satisfy Putin. And in fact, it'll just be a regroup and the war will continue regardless. So they don't really see the point of that. I mean, how much did you hear from anyone in Ukraine about what the West's role is in this um, and whether they see it as the West's role as sort of pushing them into a ceasefire or the opposite? Because I've literally read both um, and I don't know. And I, I only have like couple friends of friends and stuff that's not that's hardly representative and i know you're not doing polls you know you're you're going out and talking to people but you have been to several different cities you've talked to people um you know what which which story is more representative of of how ukrainians feel about the war and about um sort of the influence of the west in the war so pretty much universally what i hear from ukrainians when i ask about this is that territorial concessions have to be off the table and they view this war as existential Um, They think that if there is any sign of weakness, any concessions made, that it is rewarding Putin for uh, his violence, for for the brutality that he's committing against their country, and that it will only encourage more of this. So it's a total non-starter, the discussion of territorial concessions on the Ukrainian part. That's what I hear from government. That's what I hear from refugees. That's what I hear from civilians who remain in their cities. Um, On the role of the West, uh, what I hear is that Basically, the Ukrainians don't view this as just about Ukraine. They view it as about uh, protecting the integrity of borders. They view it as stopping uh, Putin before his territorial ambitions lead him beyond Ukraine to other parts of Europe. And so uh, I think kind of the refrain that I hear there is, uh, we care enough about this that we're willing to die for it. We're, We're willing to fight for it, for our freedom and to limit Putin. But the role of the West is to provide the weapons and the support that we don't have. If you give us what we need to fight, we'll do it. Um, But on the same hand, I think there's a lot of fear that the support that they're getting is too little, that it's moving too slowly. Um, There's been a lot promised. Uh, Not all of that has been delivered. And I think there is frustration. I mean, if, if you look at... Um, neighbors in the, in the region, uh, Romania, how supportive it's been, Slovakia, how supportive it's been, Poland, how supportive it's been. Um, Ukraine is very appreciative of that. On the flip side, you have the United States, which has been supportive, but very slow moving. A lot of the weaponry has gotten there much, much more slowly than it should have. I would argue that we should have started a much more aggressive effort in, you know, eight years ago <laughs> when uh, Putin took Crimea and started his mischief in the east. Um, but And there's real frustration with countries like Germany that have been um, just the delays have been pretty incredible. And there's a lot of concern that Ukraine will be politically pressured and diplomatically pressured to accept a concession. Let's talk about that weaponry, um, mm-hmm. because, you know, we, we recently spent 40 billion dollars on on aid to Ukraine. Um, and then I read in your in your article, your recent article in The Wall Street Journal that folks should go and read that Ukrainians are outgunned mm-hmm. um, vis-a-vis the Russians and specifically on on missiles that it basically your article outlines that 
for to make the same, um, even if they hit their targets, right? They have a, a much lower number of missiles. Even if they hit their targets, the Russians are duplicating, um, like duplicating essentially positions, uh, mm -hmm. and knowing that Ukrainians have to come much much closer in order to try to strike. Um, those targets. So it's more difficult for them to strike the target to begin with, because they have to get a lot closer and risk a lot more to do it. And then once they strike that, there's mo there's another missile system that is is set mm -hmm. up to continue. So it really seems like this war has moved. And, and you hinted at this um, just a few minutes ago in our conversation when you were talking about the primary um, threat comes from missile strikes uh, for most of, of Ukraine that is not in that eastern and southern band that's controlled by Russian troops. Um you know, I guess my question is why, you know, what, what, what happened? Because there was this huge aid package. I mean, $40 billion is more than the GDP of a lot of countries. And so the question is, you know, how can it be that the United States has passed this massive amount of money, um, and presumably to aid Ukraine? And how can it be that, that they are, are still completely outgunned by, by the Russian troops mm -hmm. in this case? Well, I think we got to take a couple of things into consideration on this. Um, first of all, look at the size of the Russian military and how long it's been investing in missiles and long range things. And I mean, this is a power that was locked in a Cold War with the U.S. It's a superpower. It's huge. And it has just a lot of weaponry. So if you want anything that resembles parity, it's, it's going to take a lot. And it's something that Russia has been investing in for years $40 billion, it sounds like a lot until you put it in context of something like the COVID bills. And it, it's it's really a small investment for how big of a crisis this is and how broad the geopolitical uh, implications of it are. I mean, this is the biggest land war in Europe since World War II. It has huge destabilizing potential. It's creating a massive refugee crisis. Uh, we talked a little bit about the food instability that that's creating that could lead to revolution or um political clashes elsewhere in the world. I mean, it's a really big deal. And Ukraine starting from a place where um, it actually undertook an effort to disarm. I mean, if you look back to the Budapest Memorandum, when the Soviet Union collapsed, Ukraine had nuclear weapons. It gave them up on a guarantee that Russia, the UK, and the US would protect its territorial integrity. I think this is going to be a problem in the future for when we're trying to get other countries to, to engage in nuclear disarmament, that Ukraine did this in good faith, and now it's it's getting attacked and its civilians are being slaughtered. So just going back to the, the broader question of what they have and that disparity, I think there are a couple things to look at. First of all, if you're looking at how much has been promised in aid and how much has been delivered, um, a lot has been committed. Not all of those things have actually reached the battlefield. And that's that's been a big problem. For instance, right now, HIMARS, um, those are the missile systems that have a, a pretty long range. And in recent weeks, Ukraine's been using them to great effect to target command centers, to target ammunition depots. But they only have like four of them on the battlefield. They're promised 12 of them in total. Um, but they say they need like 100 of these. And it's like you were saying, I mean, we have to look at both the disparity in quantity and the disparity in range. Um, as far as quantity, what I'm hearing is on the battlefield, uh, Russia has about 10 times the artillery, uh, in some places 20 times as much as Ukraine. And that means that it can be engaged in just like indiscriminate shelling. So when I'm talking to guys on the front line, what they're saying is it's, it's just relentless. It's day and night. Um, it's indiscriminate. It's targeting a lot of civilians. Uh, that it creates just horrific casualties, that it's sometimes difficult to evacuate wounded soldiers and civilians. 
and it's it's just coming constantly. The Ukrainians can't unleash a barrage like that for a couple reasons. First of all, they are concerned about civilian casualties, but also they just don't have as much equipment as Russia has to lob across on the Russian side. And so that's, I think, when kind of the range and precision comes in, the sophistication of weapons. Um, right now, Russia can strike really hard and really far past the front line. And what I mean by that is um, we saw, you know, the recent attack on the city of Venezia. That's pretty central. That's very, very far from the front line. And that's the one where you saw that horrific photo of the, the stroller with the little girl in it um, who was killed. So I, I think they are trying to terrorize, the Russians are trying to terrorize civilians all throughout Ukraine through places that are uh, were considered safe to create the perception that there is no safe place in Ukraine. But closer to the front line, what you're seeing is Ukrainians have to get really, really close to engage and take out Russian targets. That means they have less time to flee, because when you set off one of these weapons, it's pretty easy to figure out where you are. And if it's from a short distance, it's less time to get away to a safe distance. What you're also seeing is that, um, you know, when Russia is striking, it can take out a lot of Ukrainians as they approach the line of engagement. Ukrainians don't have enough or enough range to do that to the Russians. So when you arrive at the front line where there's actually confrontation, um, just more Russians make it there than Ukrainians. And also that range, the disparity in range means that once Ukrainians make it to the front line, the Russians can hit behind them and try to block them from escaping if they need to retreat, can cut them off or attempt to cut them off from supply lines. So it, it, it really has a profound effect on the battlefield. And what I'm hearing from a lot of Ukrainians is if we have more HIMARS, if we can strike back further, we can protect more civilians, we can take out more targets, and hopefully we can start reversing some of these gains that Russia made, particularly in the South. Um, you know, the, the refugee crisis that's coming out of us is now because it has been some number of months. I mean, I, I've honestly been, I've been kind of surprised. I thought that, uh, like many other refugee crisis uh, crises in the past, you would have um, people at, after some number of months just settling elsewhere. Um, just anecdotally, that has not been the case. I know we had um, my my family uh, has a, a cottage in in um, outside of Krakow, and we were hosting five refugees from Ukraine, and um, they wanted to go back, and and they did as soon as the the sort of um, in the, the sort of indiscriminate blanket bombing um stopped in in sort of the um eastern territories into into kiev as well they they all went home um grandma wanted to go home um i think they're mm -hmm. they're, they're really an enormous part of this diaspora wants to return and and some of them mm -hmm. have already um returned even the, just because the the as you say the stale it seems like almost have started as a stalemate there's there's a kind of relatively stable um front now established, except that, as you say, there's plenty of missile strikes going over the head of the front. Um, but but that's, as, as again, you said about uh, folks going on about with their lives, that this seems like something a lot of Ukrainians are willing to accept to return home. Um, mm -hmm. That being said, I mean, the longer this goes on, the more likely it is that, you know, kids grow, they go to school, um, you know, people meet and marry, and it seems more likely that Ukraine will not will suffer a huge population, um, not just a huge population dip, not just from regrettably people who have been killed, but also just from the flood of refugees leaving the country. And you've also written about 
the cost of the war in terms of, of infrastructure, you said that one in five hospitals is gone. I mean, um, I think in your article, you say 14% of the roads are destroyed in the country. Um, and, and that's not even counting, of course, the you know hundreds, thousands of buildings that are, are collapsed into rubble. I mean, I guess I have a two-part question. One is, even even if they were able to secure some kind of ceasefire or settlement, um, you know how how does Ukraine rebuild out of this? And and the second piece related, I guess, would be, you know, it, it's it's I don't want to get I don't want to give people the impression I I'm I'm quite I'm I'm very actually very pro Ukraine in this war, but. It, it wasn't it wasn't a perfect uh, country and it will, it will remain not a perfect country even by the standards of sort of imperfect democracies it was an incredibly corrupt um system and, and probably remains that way and and one of the things that i want people to understand is you can you can be a corrupt bastard and still be a patriot um there there are levels of right and just like the mafia was patriotic during world war ii um but how, how does ukraine potentially especially having suffered so much devastation now being much more dependent on foreign aid than, than they would have otherwise been in this war, you know, with many fewer people, um, how, how do they even avoid a future of, of being a kind of completely client buffer state um, either, either for, I guess you have to choose as a buffer state of, of, of the, of the West or, or of Russia, but, but either way, I mean, how do they avoid that kind of, of future where they have very little control over their own destiny? Well, I think when you talk to Ukrainians and this is also reflected in the polling, they view their future as European. Um, they want to join NATO at some point because they feel under threat. They want to become a part of the European union and have candidate status for that. And I think the more Russia threatens them and it slaughters their civilians, the more that affinity and desire and the, just the sense that it is a matter of their survival to become part of the West rather than be subsumed by Russia deepens. Um, I do think what we've seen, you're, you're right when you talk about Ukraine not being a perfect country, but I think uh, continuing on that theme of civil society since 2014, since Yanukovych was ousted, you have seen really significant gains in just ordinary Ukrainians uh, getting involved in their government. Some of the anti-corruption efforts that have been made there, you know, it's not perfect, but it's significant progress within an eight-year window. And I think what this war has really done is cement the idea of Ukrainian nationhood. Uh, as far as how Ukrainians see themselves and their relationship to the world, uh, they are very, very united. This is for sure a country that if it can move past the war, will have messy politics. Um, it's a country that's going to continue to have its own struggles. I mean, it's still got that Soviet Union hangover, which has not been good for any of the participants. You're trying to undo, you know, decades of totalitarianism and repression. But I, I think uh, Ukrainians have been willing to fight and die for their freedom, and they have a clear idea of what they want. Um, and I, I guess I would hope that we arm them enough that if they're willing to fight and die for it, they at least have a fighting chance. Um, speaking of the unification, I mean, uh, first of all, there's nothing that forges national identity like war. Um, you know, Ukraine has a substantial, mostly in the East, a substantial ethnic Russian and Russian-speaking minority. Um, the, the Russians have not uh, treated those cities 
any differently, really, than they've treated the rest of Ukraine. These are cities that, you know, um, since 20, 2014, at least, and, and probably before that, either wanted independence or they wanted, um, they, they actively wanted to, to uh, rejoin Russia as a province. Um, th- there was a lot of pro-Russian sentiment in, in those particular cities, like in Donbass and so on. Um, do you have any idea, since you talked to the refugees coming over, I mean, how the way that Russians have treated the Russian-speaking cities of Ukraine um, has impacted the way that ethnic Russians see those those political questions or geopolitical questions. Um, I mean, it, I, I would I would assume that it's very difficult um, that they are not helping themselves. In other words, even in the territories that they are going to control. I mean, there's a potential for Donbass to look like Chechnya, right? Like where it, it's just a, you know, decades long, low level resistance from people who don't want to be governed by the Russian state. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. So I was looking at the polling actually before the war. And I think Mariupol is a really interesting city to look at. Um, because before the war, if you looked at polling of big cities across Ukraine, this is, uh, you know, the city on the Black Sea, very far east. Um, it was the one that had the warmest and friendliest feelings toward Russia. And that is the city that I think that we have seen Russian war crimes uh, in their most horrific form. This is a place where um, I want to say the estimate was like 80 or 90 percent of buildings have been damaged. It's a place that um, just the shelling and the human cost of this, I think, is most profound there. Uh, you know, a lot of media has not been able to get in. The media that has is reporting about bodies laying on the streets for months, families huddled in bomb shelters, just the horror of what happened there. And, you know, I, I know some people who are from Mariupol who've made it to safety. And I think they're shocked. Uh, that Russia would uh, treat them this way. Um, It's really profound. You know, a lot of them, well, when I was there in, I guess, January and February in Kiev, I was talking to people and they were saying, yeah, Russia's always saying, we're like brothers. Well, we're like brothers. We're like Cain and Abel. And that is a sentiment that I'm hearing more and more from people in these uh, Russian-speaking communities, that you may claim that you're my brother, but you've murdered me. Um, and so I think we're seeing a political shift there and a consolidation around Russia, uh, Ukrainian identity. Another thing that really helps is a Russian propaganda point is that this is in part about language, about discrimination against Russian speakers. Um, but if you go to Kiev, that's not what you see. There are a lot of people who are out of patriotic sentiment trying to brush up on their Ukrainian. Uh, but there are still a lot of Russian speakers there. And I, I, I've never heard of anybody being discriminated against because of their Russian language status. Um, most Ukrainians are bilingual and think that's absurd. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to hear. Um, I mean, 80, 90 percent destruction is like Warsaw and World War Two. I mean, that, that, and I guess that leads me to my next question, which is, you know, th- this this is the first kind of old school war um, in in recent memory, especially in the United States. We've been engaged in essentially asymmetrical um, conflict, right, uh, in, in, in multiple places. I don't want to say that there hasn't been a major war. There, there have been plenty of major war. Obviously, the U.S. was in Iraq and Afghanistan for 20 years. Um, but those those wars were fundamentally, like, limited in some way. And, and it it is shocking to see, once again, like a European city reduced to, you know, 80, 90 percent destruction, um, what what does this do to Europe? Uh, because like 
I have my own sort of sentiments about this war, but from I, I can understand someone who would say from an abstract perspective, right, this should be Europe's problem and not the United States. The United States has huge, you know, conflicts on the horizon with China. Um, you know, we are going to to have, I think we already are in a type of cold war with with China. Um, and that that's going to take a lot of resources that we may or may not have. Uh, and here I'm not just talking about money, but I'm talking about national unity, patriotism, the the actual conviction that that um, you know our way of life is something that's worth fighting for and worth preserving. You know, these are all problems that we have internally. Um, I, I can understand why someone would say, "Well, how how is this our problem?" Right? Like, if if the European, you know, if if EU countries um, cannot cannot defend against an encroaching Russia, they've sold out their interests uh, to to Gazprom, you know, for for decades. You know how? Why is it? Why is it up to the U.S. to clean up this problem? And and I I understand that sentiment. Um, what what happens in in Europe under this threat? Mm-hmm. Well, I guess I'd raise a couple points on that. I think this has been a huge wake up call for Europe, um, and we're seeing that reflected in, in increase in defense spending, but also in a rethinking of some of the energy policies. I mean, you mentioned Gazprom. Uh, Russia can cut off the gas. Um, it can make a lot of Europe pay a lot of money for its energy prices, and it can possibly make people's power go out in the middle of the winter. And that's something that um, we're seeing a rethinking about uh, some of these environmental goals and whether they jeopardize national security. I guess to the broader U.S. point of why we have a national interest in getting involved, it's indisputable that Europe should have been doing more. I think it was caught sleeping at the wheel with this crisis. Um, at the same time, I, I do think the United States has an interest in ensuring that authoritarian countries don't engage in imperialism and in attacks on peaceful nations. And I think for sure, if Russia gets away with this, if it can just take territory by force, um, we are entering a world of hurt, a very dangerous new era. And you speak about China. I think that China will take away the lesson that it can take Taiwan, uh, that it can bully its neighbors um, beyond Taiwan. And so I think if we allow this to happen, you end up with a world that's much more chaotic, much more destabilized, and where things are determined not by uh, rule of law, not by um, diplomacy and international interaction, but done by force. And we've seen the cost of that in the last, you know, if you look at the last century, that's that's what we had. And it, it didn't look pretty. It, it undermined economic interest in the U.S. It, economic, it undermined markets. But I think it also created a world that's much less safe. Um, so I, I just think there's a huge American interest in stopping this unchecked aggression and unprovoked aggression before it spreads and sending a message to people who in countries that would do things like this, that you won't get away with it and that you will face resistance. Um, well, I have, I have a specific question about Europe that I wanted to ask a follow up to something you said. But before I do that, I wanted to ask you about what's the potential. I mean, I, I understand the argument you just laid out, which is that the West's response to this has been slow and, and ineffectual. And frankly, I think Putin was probably right. If, if he had done what he did in Georgia, you know, um, or, or uh, you know, in 2014, even, um, I, I think he would have probably made the right call in the sense, in the real pol- politique sense, that the West would have put a few more sanctions on Russia and they would have largely adjusted to the new status quo. Um, but he really didn't, I think, anticipate, and and there's a lot of speculation as to why, um, is is the kind of, of resistance that he's faced in Ukraine from Ukrainians, yes, now heavily supplied by the by the United States and by the West, but initially 
in those initial weeks, right? Um, without that, does this does this, does this have the potential though to to kind of um, it has exposed the West as weak, but it's also exposed Russia as in in you know not as militarily mm-hmm. dominant um, as as many people might have feared that it was. Uh, there obviously there's there's Russians have never been great at logistics, but this is this is really um, highlighted that. I mean, uh, the 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 amount of resistance that Ukraine has been able to put up against the, the Russian military is, is from the perspective of like February, right? Uh-huh. Is, is quite remarkable. Um, you know, does does this make the Chinese have second thoughts that perhaps their own military is not as well prepared as they think it is? That they might face mass resistance, um, for example, in Taiwan, that they might face, you know, even without the West, even if they correctly calculate that the West um, is, is, has a weak position and, and is unable to defend its position. I mean, this has not been good for Russia either. And here I'm not just talking about like sanctions and stuff, but they have kind of pulled their pants down in front of the world in terms of, of their inability to execute something that if you had asked people again in February, you know, can the Russian military take over Ukraine? You know, I think most people would have said, of course they can. It'll be, you know, it'll be over in a matter of weeks. Right. And yeah. here we are six months out and there's a stalemate. And and what they hold is sort of the the eastern territories that, that people predicted that they would be able to get after trying for the whole enchilada. So does this hold a different kind of lesson for China that, in fact, what what your military is on paper? Um, may very well collapse in the face of, of actual resistance and actual deployment into the field. You know, I think Russia and China are two different countries. China is certainly much more technologically advanced. It's been much more strategic. Um, but I think when you're talking more broadly about the lessons that China is learning, I think the jury is still out. And I think that is why it is so important for Ukraine to win um, and for the United States and for the West to help it win because I think it's still figuring out what lessons and conclusions to draw from it. And that is going to depend on how successful Putin is. Um, that said, I do think that there are lessons that the West should already learn from this experience. And one of them is I'd be really shocked if Putin would have undertaken this, if we had been arming Ukraine much more aggressively in 2014. Um, we are now doing makeup work. Uh, we could have, uh, I, I would argue, um, if we'd provided weapons, then it would have been a deterrent. Now it's defensive, but I, I think it's not too late to do this for Taiwan, um, to arm it so it can defend itself. You're already seeing in Taiwan, um, Ukraine has this thing called the territorial defense where people who are civilians, it's almost like a national guard program, but they can go on the weekends and get military training and just be ready, be ready for conflict. And I, I went in January and February and watched some of them training. And it's been really interesting to see uh, what a significant role they've played in this war. And now you're seeing Taiwan look at that precedent and some people trying to organize their own territorial defense there. But I guess I'd argue if there's a lesson to be learned here, it's to arm democracies that want to fight for their freedom and stand up for their freedom before the bad guy attacks, because it's much more difficult to to ward off a bad guy once the war has already begun. Um, There's nothing inevitable about this conflict. Um, And I think we should be thinking as a West about how we prevent the next one. Um, to return to the Europe question, which I think is related to what you just said, I mean, 
it seems to me, and I would, I was wanted to ask you for some specific evidence that Western Europe is in fact changing its energy policy and its military policy uh, to a more serious posture given given this conflict. Because I, I haven't, but maybe I, I just don't know. But I, I haven't seen them. It's it's Eastern Europe and Central Europe that's changing its posture. I mean, so I guess there's two parts to this question. One is Western Europe moving, for example, Germany moving to a position where. Um, you know they 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 won't be so actively blasé about depending so heavily on Putin for gas, um, and and the second part of that question, I mean, if if the United States is going to be p- pivoting towards Asia and and ultimately is probably going to have a smaller footprint in in Europe or would like to have a smaller footprint in Europe than we have for the last fifty years. Um, are the allies that we should be looking for in that region, should we be just circumventing the major powers of Europe, quote unquote, major powers of Europe, like Germany and France? And should we be talking directly and arming directly the Eastern Europe um, borders who, and like countries like Poland, Lithuania, um, you know, these are countries, as you pointed out, that that have responded aggressively, both in building their mm-hmm. own military and offering aid to Ukraine I mean, at what point do we 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 give up the ghost on Germany and we, we start to look east for stronger allies and building them into some kind of uh, actual defensive, um, you know, deterrent threat? Well, I don't think these things are mutually exclusive. Um, I, I am really encouraged to see this reality check happening in in Germany and France, um, in some of these Western European countries. I, I do think you're seeing a slight increase in military spending. Could it be more? Yes. Are you dealing with a country that for decades has thought that it doesn't need to spend money on this? Yes. So that's progress. I think you're also seeing a rethinking on um, nuclear energy. Uh, You've certainly seen um, with some of the coal plants that they had hoped to consign to extinction, uh, thinking about bringing those back online. You know, I, I would hope that the United States would look at this and understand the importance of its own energy independence, because it's not just a matter of what you pay at the pumps. It's a matter of uh, national security. It's a matter of your being able to bolster and supply these allies when Russia is using natural gas as a weapon. So I think if we'd done more with that, we could arguably be doing more for Europe now. Um, But for sure, you know, I I think that we should, you know, you're already seeing um, an increase in NATO presence on the border with Ukraine. Um, you know, I was in Zhuzhou, Poland and walking around the middle of downtown and you see a lot of American soldiers there that have been recently deployed. So I, I do think that we should be engaging with those countries um, and helping create that deterrent. But I, I don't think that you can just write off Germany and France, as frustrating as that is. They are important. And hopefully this is driving them to make better policy decisions. I want to close with this. Um, you said you've been to Ukraine and three times, once just before the war, twice since the war has started. Have there been any sort of stories or incidents or conversations that you had that have stuck with you the most as you've returned to the United States? I mean, what, 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 um, you know, what aspects of your trip do you think that you will continue to remember for, for years to come here? Yeah, a couple of them spring to mind. So I, the one that I really liked and that I was really excited to write about is Ukrainian railwaymen. And why I was excited to write about them is um, Ukraine's railway system is really, really important. But you had soldiers that were leaving for the front line and saying goodbye to their wives and their children one time. And then you had railwaymen who were going every single day 
into danger, into the front line to rescue civilians, bring them back to safety and then waking up the next day and doing it again. And I loved interviewing those railway men because I thought it was um, such a good example of kind of the, they embody the ordinary heroism that I see so much in Ukraine. There are people that have just decided, you know what, despite the personal risk, I'm going to show up, do my job and sacrifice myself for my, my countrymen potentially. And I thought it was really interesting to hear that and almost um, the casualness with which they rose to the occasion that they just decided this is the right thing and there's nobody else to do it. So I'm going to do it. Um, so I thought that was really inspiring. Um, I think the interviews that will haunt me from this uh, talking to the wives of prisoners of war and just their fear and uncertainty of not knowing where their men are, if their men are okay, and not knowing if there's any potential to see them again and knowing that they are, um, they were captured fighting against an enemy who hates them. I think that's really fearsome. And uh, it, it was just honestly a heartbreaking interview. Julia Melchior, uh, thank you so much for coming on High mm -hmm. Noon. You can read those stories and, and Jillian's other reporting at the Wall Street Journal. Um, and I, I really encourage you to do so. She's she's uh, doing the the real journalism work um, of, of going over and talking to people and directly getting their stories and recording what's happening in this in this horrific war and, and making sure that the news of what happened uh, there does get out to the world. So, Jillian, thank you for your work and thanks for thank joining you. me today. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to inez.stepman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.